Go ahead and uh, take a seat. Welcome to Epiphany this evening. Uh, it's good to be here with you tonight. In case I have not met you before, my name's Eric and I'm the pastor here at Epiphany. And we're a fairly new church that just got planted in the area here in the last uh, couple years. And um, it's been a, a, an amazing ride. It's been uh, full of all sorts of things. Today, uh, we are continuing our series looking at the book of Revelation, the scariest book in the Bible. Uh, and it is, you know, it is weird. It definitely is weird. And we're going to get even weirder tonight as we dig in. But before we do that, let me uh, start us off with a word of prayer and then we'll continue. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here tonight in this place. We come with all sorts of things on our mind. There's myriad distractions at any given moment, especially here in the city. Some of us walk in very heavy. Some of us walk in just having a hard time focusing. And so I pray by the power of your spirit, you would give us a moment to hear from you. Your servant up here is, as always, far too imperfect and feeble to deliver what needs to be delivered, but I trust in you to deliver. And so be with us now as we enter into your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are looking at Revelation chapter 14 tonight, Revelation 14, all the way through chapter 15, verse 4. Now, uh, in our last time together, we discussed the rampa rampage and chaos that will be brought to the world by this symbolic unholy trinity introduced to us in Revelation, known as the, uh, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And of course, these characters are symbols. They're meant to be seen as symbolic for deeper uh, characters at the time and indeed uh, even towards the end. For example, we saw how the dragon representing uh, Satan or the devil has allied himself and has used great world powers. Uh, Rome back in the day, the Roman Empire is definitely in reference here. And also powerful political leaders. People like Nero then who is certainly alluded to in chapter 13 in sort of symbolic language, but, but really could be any powerful politician of any generation. And he uses these instruments as a means to persecute the people of God, to bring trouble. And because the tribulation is pictured as so severe and so difficult, the injunction given throughout to the people of God, especially the, the seven churches in Asia Minor that this letter was initially given to, was to, quote, stand fast, to persevere, to not give up, to be faithful no matter what. Pretty regularly, I talk to people that are afraid of the last days. They're afraid of the end times. If they've especially been brought up in traditions where they had to watch those really terrible 70s era films that were meant to literally scare the hell out of you, uh, it did the trick for a lot of people. It really did. 
It did frighten them. And they hear about the tribulation and the trials that are described to us in the Bible, especially in Revelation, and they just, they just hope, against all hope, that they won't have to go through it. Uh, but tonight, I, I, want you, I want you to imagine, as we enter into our text, that you will have to go through it. That you will face trials and difficulties. I want you to imagine, if you're a Christian here tonight, being ostracized and marginalized for your confession. So much so that you're unable to participate in the economy, chased down and hunted by the, the powers that be. Seen by most around you as, at the very least, suspect, but by some, as the enemy of order and the state. After all, this is what the early Christians often felt like, and this is what Christians in many parts of the world today still have to endure. What if you had to go through that? Do you think you could persevere? Do you think you could stand strong? That's really the issue that our chapter tonight deals with. How is it that the people of God, people just like you and I, will persevere until the end while under such strain? Well, first of all, the reason that the people of God will persevere and hold fast is because they have been redeemed and sealed. Look at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, before I go any further, I do want to point us back to something. If you remember way back in chapter 7, even if you weren't here for that, I'll describe it to you. We heard this number 144,000. There was 144,000 people with God in the heavenly places said to be his followers. And what we said about that number back then is that this number was meant to represent, really, it was a symbolic number to represent the saints. It's not a literal number. It's a number that suggests completion. Also note, as we just read there, described as having the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. This does not mean they literally have the name Jesus and the Father tattooed on their foreheads. That's not what this is saying. But rather, this is a symbolic way of reminding people that they are owned and sealed by God. That they are His. They are His possession. We pick it up at verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. 
and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let me just stop there for a second. It's important for you to note here, just in case you might get tripped up on the language, that when it talks about these people not having defiled themselves, being virgins, this is a way of telling us they were pure. It is not necessarily saying that anybody who has had sexual relations is therefore excluded. But this is a way of suggesting that these people were pure in the eyes of God. They are, they've been redeemed, they've been sealed, and they're seen as pure. How is it that the church, represented by this number, 144,000, will persevere through all the tribulation of the unholy trinity, as it were? Because they've been redeemed. How will you stand when trials and tribulations come your way, whether you're living in the last days or whether you're just living in every average ordinary day where trials and tribulations can come to you now? The same answer. Because you have been redeemed. The church can stand because Christ owns you and he's not looking for refunds. He's bought you. He's paid for you with his very own blood. There's no way he's going to let that go to waste. You will persevere because he will persevere you. He will preserve you. Remember, he has promised no one can pluck you out of his father's hand. This means that all the powers of the universe can come against you, and you can still stand. Yes, it's true, as has been depicted for us throughout the book, the beast could take your life here, but that just means you'll go on to eternity. The Apostle Paul thus asks in his famous passage in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Basically all the things, like all the possible things that can be thrown at you. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Could death separate us? We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. He is talking about the very things we're talking about tonight. Bring it on. None of it can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. That's why you can persevere. Because you're redeemed and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, uh, the second reason the church can persevere is because one day this will come to an end. Like one day, things will be made right. It's, there's something comforting and indeed that spurs us on in knowing that the injustice that we see all around us in the world one day is going to be dealt with. 
In another end times passage out of Matthew 24, Jesus says, If those, day, those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. As bad as tri- tribulations and trials can become, Jesus promises to bring judgment before it's too late. What will that look like from heaven's perspective? Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon representing the empires of the world rising up against God and his people. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beasts in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I do have to say, before moving on, uh, just as the mark or the seal that the believers are given, the name of Jesus, the name of God on the forehead, is not a literal mark, so too with the mark here, it is not a literal necessarily uh, literal mark either. Rather, again, it's meant to suggest the same thing. Those who have given themselves over in devotion to that which is against God. Remember that the devil's ways are always just a counterfeit of God's ways as the ancient Israelites were called to show their devotion to the true God by placing phylacteries with God's law on their forehead and on their wrists. So now the people of the enemies of God are called symbolically to do the same thing. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And what does this judgment result in? Here is a call, again, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. As the church holds fast, stands strong, part of the reason she can do so is because she knows the persecution will not last forever. There'll be an end to this, and what's coming is far superior in every way. So John, John says, don't give in to the temptations to follow the easy path of the beast and, and his ways. Yes, it's hard and challenging, no doubt about it. Yes, you could be ostracized and marginalized for what you confess. Perhaps there will be economic costs to you at some point in history. Perhaps even, yes, you could lose your life. But remember, remember, Church John says, this is but a vapor. This life is so, so temporary. 
One day, the powerful will no longer plunder the weak. One day, the meek shall inherit the earth. One day, those who have been victims of the injustice will have all things made right. And so the Apostle Paul can say in another section in his letter to the Thessalonians, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with the thought of God restoring what's been broken. My problem most of the time is I don't encourage myself or others with these thoughts, if I'm honest. My focus is so often on the temporal that my mind barely has time to think about the eternal, and this results in in me getting pretty weak in the spiritual knees, if I'm honest. As I focus on the traffic that's bothering me now, the financial struggles bothering me now, the difficulties that are bothering me now, I can get so weighed down by it all, and I lose perspective, begin to be overwhelmed, trying to fix that which I simply don't have the power to fix. And soon, if, if you're not careful, all of a sudden you find yourself compromising in ways just to make life a little easier. It's easy. It's so easy. I mean, it starts so often with just, just one thing. I'm reminded of uh, Bernie Madoff. Some of you might remember he was the... the the man who defrauded his clients of a whopping $65 billion, billion with a B. But you know, if you listen to his story, he really, he never intended for it to become so big. He never intended for it to get that out of control. As a matter of fact, his Ponzi scheme really started tiny. It was just this one time where he was like, well, if I, I, I can do this, I can do that. But I, once things get back on track, then I'll make it right and everything will be clean and good. And, and it didn't work like that at all. And it doesn't work like that so often in the spiritual life for us. We find ourselves going down a path and we don't even realize that all of a sudden we're way further down than we recognized. What if instead we, we really did live believing that, 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 yes, this is utterly temporal. And yes, the allure and the temptations that seem to be so powerful right now, they will flee. The third reason the church will persevere is because... God will ultimately bring you home. Look at verse uh, 14 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, what on earth is this imagery about? From the sound of it, it might seem scary. 
But actually, the language here is language frequently employed throughout Scripture to, de to uh, de depict Jesus gathering his people home to him finally. If you look back in the parables of Matthew, you'll hear him talk about the judgment and how he will reap the wheat and bring it into his barn. This is a gathering of his people that is happening now. He's gathering them to his side. He's gathering them home. Uh, the greatest Thanksgiving movie of all time is called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I don't know if you have seen it, but it's old enough that I can tell you something about it, although some of you will still complain about spoilers. But I watch it every year on Thanksgiving or the night before Thanksgiving. If you haven't seen it, the story centers around Steve Martin's character, Neil Page. Nice to meet you, Neil Page trying desperately to get home to his family from a business trip before Thanksgiving. And along the way, Neil Page comes across oh-so-friendly and at least attempting to be helpful, Del Griffith, played by John Candy. And after having their flight delayed, Del assures Neil that they're, well, they're going to have to figure out another way to get him home in time, and Neil believes him. And of course, nothing works as planned. First, the flight is delayed, then they're robbed, then they hitch a ride, then they take a train that doesn't work and that doesn't make it, then they try to rent a car that isn't there, with all of it culminating in them eventually getting on a bus that finally leads them to another train that will finally bring Neil home. Now, the whole time in the movie, the whole time it seems as if Dell will not be able to deliver on his promise of getting Neil home because of all the problems that seem to get in their way. But indeed, eventually, he makes it. There's going to be, inevitably, on the way home, there's going to be pitfalls and stops and bumps and bruises, but we are going to get home. Jesus is going to bring his people home. We go back to the texts. The imagery here is important to dwell on for a minute. One of the things we learn from those parables is that God is separating the wheat from the chaff. He's separating it at the end, and the chaff goes over here, and the wheat goes over here. The wheat comes to him. The wheat symbolizes his church. And the chaff, of course, symbolizes those who have rebelled against God. But here's something else about those parables that I want to highlight. One of the things we find out is that the God of this world is able to transform chaff into wheat. Weeds into beautiful, fruitful life. So to use the language of our text in Revelation, God is able to make followers of the unholy trinity, as it were, into followers of the true trinity. Because after all, that is me. And that is everybody who's born into this place. As we read earlier tonight, Ephesians doesn't have any qualifiers. It just says, and you, written to a church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I've seen God do this. I've experienced God do this. And the good news for you and I is that he's still doing it. He's not done yet. The fact that he hasn't brought us home yet means that he is still outstretching his arm to a world that might thumb their nose at him and saying, I want you to come home too. And the good news for you and I, as Philippians tells us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So what does all this result in? Let's skip ahead to chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It results in praise. When it's all said and done, what's going to be happening? We're going to look back at all that God has delivered us from, as unworthy as we naturally are, and we're going to shout from the rooftops with praise. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? Reverence you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So if you ever wonder how you're going to stand, you're going to stand because you are a servant of the God who is going to make you and take you all the way home. Father, we pray tonight that you would give us faith to believe this, to trust you. The hardship that comes our way, our own sin, so often, is what causes us to stumble. Help us, Lord God, to trust that even in spite of that, you will not give up on us. You will continue the work you've begun so that we can face whatever might come our way. And now, Father, with one voice, we pray together the prayer that our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.